to the City World Radio Network, high-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world, www.cityworldradio.com. Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. Okay, welcome to, um, welcome to IntelligentTalk.com. Uh, we're very happy to have Grace Cannon Warnicky. She's the author of a new book called Daughter of the Cold War. She's the daughter of arguably the most important diplomat in American history, at least of the 20th century, George Kennan, who I had the pleasure of meeting uh, years ago. He wrote the famous long telegram to President Truman, which was the base of U.S. containment policy and was expelled, actually, as ambassador of the Soviet Union by uh, Joseph Stalin. So, um, Grace Kennan, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Well, Ralph, thank you for having me. Well, thank you. So, um, yes, I just gave a brief introduction. I'm not sure everyone know, knows, of course, who your father was, but he was a big influence on my life. I studied him when I was at Brown, and as I said, I had the opportunity to meet him back in 1988. Um, just want to go over with your life. You were um, born in Latvia, correct? Right. And your father was stationed there, right? Yes, we had a leg- we didn't have an embassy then, but we had a legation, and my father was stationed in the legation, in the American legation. And my mother was Norwegian, and um, because we were stationed in Latvia, I was born in Latvia. And then you you moved around. Your father had diplomatic posts in uh, Berlin and Vienna, correct? Yes, in Berlin and in Vienna, in Prague, in Portugal, and of course, most of all, Moscow. Yes, and you were actually there when Hitler invaded uh, Czechoslovakia, I believe. You were an eyewitness to that. I was do you very have a small eyewitness. <laughs> do you, do you, is a very young eyewitness. Very young eyewitness. Do you, do you have, but we did see, I did see Hitler, and it was made, there was such a point made of the fact that I was seeing Hitler, because he went by below our apartment in an open car after they had taken over um, Czechoslovakia. Was it then your father was stationed to Berlin and later interned when the war started? Yes, that was afterwards. And then you were sent back to the United States, uh, I believe, yes, right? Yes, my sister and I went back. My sister Jonah and I went back to the United States. And then later with you... With our mother. And then, and then she came back again, I believe. Yes, your, your mother, as you said, was Norwegian. We were left with some with my father's sister in uh, Highland Park, Illinois. Okay. And, of course, I, I met your mother, too, and she was. I remember her being very nice. And, okay, as you said, she was from a small town, I believe, in Norway. Then you make your way back to... Uh, the Soviet Union, actually, and and you're in Moscow during the war, I believe. Is that right? We were there from, they were there from 44 to 46. I was there for a year, 44 to 45. And then I came back to the States to go to uh, boarding school. So when you were in in Moscow, this is during World War II, this is under uh, uh, Stalin, do you have pretty vivid memories? You were the only, I believe, American in the class, right? I was the only foreigner in the whole school. Only foreigner in the whole Not school. Not just American. I mean, there was nobody <laughs> except me. And um, there was a Chinese who was the daughter of a famous Chinese uh, communist. But I believe they were actually Soviet citizens. I mean, they lived there full time. 
I mean, what a unique experience to have that. I mean, does that stand out? When you look back at that, does it does it seem like a, a pretty interesting part of your life? Uh, but it, probably not at the time, maybe. Well, you know, I just assume that what what came along, when you're a child, you don't you don't think in terms of, I didn't know how other people lived. Right. I only knew how we lived, and we lived constantly moving. I did not go to the same school twice, two years in a row until I was in the 11th grade. So I just assumed every year you went to a new school. Okay. And then, I must confess, I didn't like always being the new girl in the class. Yes, I can, I can imagine. Do you remember the times of being in Moscow during the war? Do you remember air raids and, and seeing military equipment? And... There weren't air raids then. It was 44 to 45, and the, the air raids were over. Okay. Um, the Germans were retreating, and during that very dangerous time, the American embassy had been moved to a small town, and it had now come back to Moscow. So that was not what it was not Spassel House then. I guess it was not. No, there was Spassel House. It was. Uh, our ambassador was April Harriman, and he lived in Spassel House. Because I, I had the opportunity. And we were, My father was the number two deputy chief of mission, as they call it, and we lived in an apartment in the embassy. I remember how beautiful Spassel House was myself when I was there in the late seventies. It was owned by a Russian sugar czar, I believed, and taken over by the Americans in the thirties. I think under Ambassador Bullet. Who's I think FDR That's right. ambassador. So anyway, so so now you have that this unique experience. You come back to the United States. Um, your father is later uh, brought back to the Soviet Union and, and expelled by Stalin. Right, I believe in fifty two. He was made ambassador in nineteen fifty two, and it was while he was ambassador that he was expelled by. He was declared persona non grata, is the, the official terminology, um, by Stalin. Yes. Just, just in talking about your father, um, I, I, I've heard you several of your interviews. You interview on C-SPAN and, and other interviews you've done. And although your father could be like a, a remote figure, you you were fairly close to him. The times you spent together is that is that right? Yes, I I, I um I loved I loved my father, and he was very he really was wonderful with small children. He he loved to tell stories. He made up games. He read aloud endlessly. I mean, he would read whole books aloud to us. He was often not there. I mean, there was one period in my life I didn't see him for two years, so I'm I'm serious when I say he was not always there. But when he was there, what little time he had, he, um, he made life fun. He made life sort of come alive. And uh, my mother, unfortunately, didn't have that particular gift, so I really appreciated it from my father. Perhaps your father's most famous uh, work was was the so-called long telegram uh, before becoming ambassador to Truman that basically said the Soviets were inherently expansionist and they had to be washed. And, and um, I, as you said, one, one of your interviews, that was a time when Roosevelt was calling him Uncle Joe and things like that. Did you ever talk to him about the long telegram and his, his seminal work on that or your, your thoughts on that? Well, I don't think we had a, you know, a conversation. After all, I was only... Um, 11 or something when that happened. Um, but I am very well aware of it. It was the longest telegram I believe has ever been sent to the State Department. It was over 8,000 words. And I've, I've talked to people who watched it come in, and the word came coming, started going around the State Department. There's this telegram coming in, and it keeps coming and coming. And people, I gather, stood around. Some people stood around and watched it coming in. In those days, security was a little different. And you could actually see the incoming telegrams. And um, and it 
became, it later became an article in um, Foreign Affairs in 1940. It, it, in fact, came out, the Long Telegram was in February of 1946, but then it came out in 1947 as an article in Foreign Affairs, and after that, a sort of abridged version uh, came out in Life magazine. But they didn't allow my father to... Um, they wanted him not to not to have this attributed to him, so the um, it was signed X. It was written anonymously, supposedly. And for a long time, it was called the... It's often been called the X article. And when I first went to college, people who thought they were very clever would call me Miss X. <laughs> yes. I, of course, I loved it. <laughs> that's, that's a wonderful title. I mean, I remember when I had the, the one opportunity I had to meet your grandfather was summer of 1988 because he knew my grandfather who had been also ambassador to the Soviet Union under Carter. And I, had to, I got to spend the day with your father. And I talked to him. And basically, what he affirmed is that after Stalin died, he sort of shifted and was no longer really the hawk of that that X article, and it sort of became, I don't know if you would say a dove or a liberal, but he later opposed the Vietnam War and, and sort of took different positions. So is it, is it, and then later, of course, even predicted the breakup of the Soviet Union. I think he told President Bush that, number one, um, as well in his office. Um, but was your view that your father shifted his, his view after Stalin's death and really became more of a liberal? No. And first of all, I think that they're two different things. Uh, as far as being liberal and conservative, he was always very conservative. He was a liberal in the field of foreign policy, and he stayed a liberal. And that's why he was a liberal. He was against, um, he was horrified by by war. He had gone um, right after the war. He did a trip all through Europe, and he saw all that human and physical devastation that World War II caused. And I think it made an indelible impression on him. I mean, I grew up listening to him talk about how horrible war was. And so I think his anti-military policy came from a real horror of what he had seen. And don't forget, they lived in Europe, not in places that were being bombed, but we were in Europe. They were in Europe most of the war. And my um, Norwegian grandparents, my grandfather was... Uh, interned in a camp um, in Christiansand, Norway. He was tortured. I mean, it, the war was very real to them. But is it fair to say that he became more accommodating towards the Soviets after Stalin's death and was in favor of negotiations and detente and, and all of that? He was always in favor, even in the... Uh, that's the whole point. He, the whole point of the X article was that we didn't want to go to war with the Soviet Union, and therefore we should... Um, we should, you know, keep keep um, talking to them. We just shouldn't um, idolize them. We shouldn't call him Uncle Joe and things like that. So it was, it was a difference when we were allies, but it wasn't that much of a difference. In, 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 in the well-known book, The Wise Men, which is about the, the, the six or so men that shaped the world after World War II, your father is quoted in there as not liking President Roosevelt. And I brought that up to him when I met him. And he basically, as I understand it, he thought the war should have been focused on Germany, not Japan. He thought that we sort of provoked Japan by having the embargo that we did of the oil on Japan. And uh, he didn't have a high regard for FDR back in 88 when I met him. Was that your feeling that those were his views? Yeah, on he, he had a lot of problems with FDR. You're absolutely right. And the main, the, it started way back in 1937. All the um, 
embassy and everything we did with Russia was run by what was then called the Division of Eastern European Affairs in the State Department. And in 1937, um, Roosevelt abolished this and folded the Division of Eastern European Affairs into the Western European Division. Now, this might sound to you like bureaucratic nothing, but it meant a great deal to all those Russian experts that had grown up in the Division of Eastern European Affairs. It felt to them like a slap in the face. They had, for example, that division had a wonderful library, and they were so afraid the library would be lost that Chip Boland took the books and hid them in his house. I mean, it was this much drama was going on. Um, he also, my father, I think, thought of FDR as a somewhat of as an amateur. He was not really seriously interested in foreign affairs, and he took the advice more of his friends than he did of the, you know, the professional diplomats. Okay. And also in 1943, when we were stationed in Portugal, when he was stationed in Portugal, my father came home and met with FDR personally. But at the end of the meeting, he felt he was sort of unappreciated. Right. And then I, I think the final blow of all this ante was that um, he really resented not being asked to go to Yalta. Okay. And nobody contacted him about Yalta or asked him about Yalta. And I think that was very upsetting to him. Yes, I mean, I, I could still see in my one conversation with him that he, that uh, the feelings were pretty strong in that era. One of the most fascinating things about your book, and um, it goes, goes into, I didn't understand the mechanics until I really read, but I guess in 67, Stalin's daughter uh, defects. She was in India, and then she defects, and the um, the Americans want someone to check out if that story is true, if she really is Stalin's daughter. So they send your father on a plane to Switzerland to meet with her, and then later you are asked, after a variety of reasons, because of the first person she was with, she sort of fell out with, to sort of take care of Stalin's daughter and have this fascinating time. Could you discuss that aspect, and if, if I summarize it correctly? You've summarized it very well. Okay. Um, yes, except, so they, basically what my father had offered was our family farm in, in of all places, East Berlin, Pennsylvania. Um, but um, And she, of course, originally turned it down, then she fell out with the people she was staying with, and she announced at very short notice that she was ready to come to the farm. It was summer, and my parents always went to Norway in the summer uh, because of my Norwegian mother, and she was not giving up Norway for Svetlana Stalin. <laughs> so they went off to Norway, and my sister Joan took care, and her husband, then husband Larry Griggs took care of Svetlana before I did, and then I came and took care of her. But when Joan, who had two small boys, but I had three small children, and when Joan and her husband went off to study, to to take a course on being in the Peace Corps, uh, I was asked if I would look after her two boys as well as my three. So when Svetlana arrived, it was wonderful, except I had five children and Svetlana. And this definitely colored the whole trip because all those children had to be fed three meals a day. We were I was not allowed to have any help in the house. It's a large house because my father was really afraid that this was going to be another Trotsky. And somehow the Russians were going to find her and she was going to be kidnapped and killed or abducted. or So we couldn't have anybody to help clean, help do anything. And... Um, 
So I was kind of overburdened, to put it mildly. Yeah. And we didn't even have modern conveniences. We didn't have a washer. We didn't have a dryer. All the laundry had to be taken into East Berlin, where I put little dimes in, a, in those days it was a dime, in machines. And then you had to wait and go back and move it from the washer to the dryer, well, you could imagine. So this trip, I've been so excited about uh, being with um, with Svetlana uh, Stalin. And I had a new notebook, and I was going to write all our conversations. And I really felt I'd had this amazing opportunity. And in a way, I did have an amazing opportunity. But in another way, just because of the mechanics of the situation, I spent an awful lot of time just trying to keep this household running forward. Yes. The, the, and the, the, the and were... so it was kind of funny. It, it just, and when I tell the story, people laugh, but it, it wasn't exactly what I had in mind. I did get to know her, of course. I mean, I lived with her for three weeks. Uh, but um, just the same, it wasn't quite what I'd imagined. It's sort of interesting because I've read uh, Beria's son's book, Sergio Beria, who was, of course, Stalin's head of the secret police, head of the KGB. And what she says in talking to you, as I understand it, is that she blames all of the, the stuff that's attributed to Stalin to basically Beria and basically absolved. Oh, she did. Yeah. She, oh, she and I talked about that. Yes, we did actually have some serious talks, but it was just um, not half as many as I wanted, put it that way. Well, yeah, you had your hands full doing all the work, and you, as you said, she wasn't willing to really contribute much, and she was kind of like the princess raised by in this strange childhood. Well, but she was the Kremlin princess. The Kremlin she princess. wasn't going to start drying dishes on my watch anyway. And then you said she turned on you later, and then she called you up, what, in the 70s or something? But but she basically had a, had a habit of basically turning on everyone, right, who she was close to? Yeah, I was the first Kremlin she turned on, but later she, one after another, she turned on everybody, and then she would go back. In other words, many years after she wasn't speaking to me, I suddenly had a phone call for her. She was in Princeton. Did I want to come by and see her daughter, Olga? And I said, fine. Yeah. And I did go by. Yeah. that's Is Olga still alive today? Yes. She she lives under a different name, and um, I believe out in the state of Washington. Interesting. It's it's kind of like, as I understand, MacArthur's son lives in New York City under a different name, too, because he wanted nothing to do with um, the fame of, of General Douglas MacArthur. So I would love to, of course, track her down, but that's for another um, another program. So you have this, this interesting experience, and, of course, I didn't even get to your marriages. Your, 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 your second husband um, was sort of like the architect for the Kennedy family, right? He did the grave for President Kennedy, and he knew yes. Jackie. Mm-hmm. And, he did. And through that, you were able to take— um, Ted Kennedy to the Soviet Union, right? You sort of act as his translator, and later Joan Baez. Yes, well, that, Joan Baez had nothing to do with the Kennedys. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was not a Kennedy connection at all. <clears throat> I did take Joan Baez to uh, Russia, and it was an amazing, wonderful trip. And she is such a beautiful singer. And you, you, your trip with Ted Kennedy when you took him, did you with positive experiences from that and enjoyed Oh, yeah. I mean, and we met with Brezhnev. I mean, how often do you get to meet a head, a head of the whole Soviet Union? And I remember walking through the Kremlin and walking up that path to go up to his um, where his offices were. And um, it just, I had goosebumps the whole time. That's, as I understand, Brezhnev could be kind of a playful person, uh, 
and 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 he had a car collection, and he sort of he had interest in Western movies and TV shows, and uh, including oh, yeah. Well, we did not discuss Western movies right. or TV shows. I mean, this was kind of a serious meeting, and Kennedy had you know a list of serious things he wanted to accomplish. Right, and um, we were only with them for the first half hour, maybe, of this meeting, and then Joan and the children and I. Uh, I took her away because he had his own translator. Um, Brezhnev. One of the other. And, and, sorry. What? One of the other very interesting uh, meetings that you had too is you met with Vladimir Putin you, when you were you were doing consulting in Moscow, right, in the early nineties, and he was he was deputy mayor, and you had a meeting with him. Yes, I did. In fact, I met with him alone for about twenty to twenty-five minutes, and I think I'm one of the few people that can can say that. Um, I had my own consulting firm called Sovis Business Consultants. I was president of it. Um, it was a very small firm, but I was president. And um, I had a client who wanted to do something with the port of St. Petersburg. And I was very proud because I had an appointment with the mayor, whose name was Subchuk. And I was, you know, I'd gotten this appointment, and I was feeling very good, and I was doing such a good job. And then at the last minute, they said, oh, Subchuk's been called away on business, and you mind, you're going to have to meet with the deputy mayor, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. Well, I knew he was KGB. That's all I knew. And um, I was I was put out because that's not who I wanted to meet with. I think he was equally put out. He didn't want to meet with some woman who headed some business thing. I don't think he was used to dealing with women in that position. And... Um, we talked for about 20, 20, and we talked in Russian. He didn't speak English in those days. Or if he did speak English, he wouldn't speak English. I, I, I don't know the complete answer to that. So we spoke in Russian, and, um, <clears throat> of course, I didn't get anything I wanted. And then I guess the meeting, you might say, in that sense was a failure. But in another sense, I'm one of the few people who had that kind of meeting with Putin. And you said his eyes were the coldest eyes you would see, kind of like what McCain said, right? Looking into it, they seemed like cold to you. Is that, is that right? They were the coldest eyes I've ever seen. And all I could think of, people always say, what did you talk about? And all I can think of, I knew he was KGB. And I looked in those eyes and I thought, my God, if he was interrogating me, how would I feel? Right. And I know I would have been terrified. Right. Um, you know, just I, have, I, I want to ask you more about your life, but just since, since we talk about Putin, just just one question about that. I mean, you obviously, um, like your father, you speak fluent Russian. You're very knowledgeable in the country, so I think you're a good person to ask about this, and also maybe what your father would think too, if you could ask, answer that. But do you think, in some ways, it's more dangerous today with Putin than it was under, say, a Brezhnev? Because Putin is kind of like the de facto czar of Russia. There really is no Politburo checking him the way there was with Brezhnev, and even to a degree with Stalin's. I mean. And and so, in some ways, or is it more dangerous today than it was in, in prior Soviet leaders? Well, I'm not sure that it's... First of all, I'm not sure that... Um, <clears throat> I don't think Stalin had very many people checking him either. He had really unlimited power. Brezhnev did, you're right. But, um... um no, I, th- I think Putin's a bit risk-averse, really. You do? Sounds funny, Yeah. In other words, he took over Crimea, but he knew we weren't going to do anything about it. Okay. Um, you know, it, what was he going to lose? So you don't see him invading the Baltic states or something like that? 
Uh, people in the Baltic states are truly worried about it, and I've talked to quite a lot of them. I don't think he's going to personally, but I mean, I hope to God that I'm right. You also, you did work in Ukraine, right? You did work for empowering women um, after your consultant? I had a project that was funded by USAID on women's economic empowerment. Mm-hmm. And how long I helped you... start small businesses, and I was there for four and a half years. Interesting. And then later, you could you tell us about your work with the National Committee on American Foreign Policy when you got involved? Well, I was acting president and chairman, of, uh, and I was chairman of the board for five years and are, are of you... the National Committee on American Foreign Policy which is a very good, I think, think tank that's based in New York City. We have programs, so if anybody's interested, they're more than welcome to come. And uh, then we do a lot of Track 2 diplomacy, particularly in Southeast Asia. What is what is Track 2 diplomacy versus Track 1? Okay. Track 2 diplomacy is, is um, when you meet secretly with people from... Um, with other countries with whom you can't have certain meetings in the open. For example, we and it's been in the paper, so I'm not divulging any secret, we have done a lot of work in bringing China and Taiwan together. Interesting. And, and the website is, uh, N, is ncafp.org, if I recall. Is that right? Or? Yes, NCAFC, National Committee on American Foreign Policy. Yes, and and um, and they also did work on the Northern Ireland, I believe, the peace process too, and facilitating. We did a lot of work on Northern Ireland, and we were very. I think we were the by far the most um, influential nonprofit that worked on that, and we worked on it for many, many years. Getting Jerry Adams to get a visa, I believe, and Ted Kennedy helped with we that too. We got Jerry Adams' visa, and we're all very proud of it. Right, he's got a, like, almost like the shadow head of the IRA, and sort of a sort of controversial figure, but obviously. It, it, and we're doing, you know, we we keep. I mean, whenever there's um, something that's delicate like that, we it's where we sort of shine. Yes, absolutely. So just, if, you know, if I could, your father, I believe, passed away in 2004. Is that right? No, 2005. 2005, sorry. So he, he was he was around for the 9-11 attacks. He, was he living in Princeton at that time? Because that's, that's when I dropped him off in Asia. He was living in Princeton, but I was living in Ukraine. You living in Ukraine. Um, I mean, so I couldn't even reach them. Uh, yes, that's because it was an anniversary party for them, right? If I recall, you were saying you were going to go to... It was their wedding anniversary. The wedding they, anniversary. Were, they were married on September 11th. So you, you, your father, as we discussed earlier, he was he was he um, had this liberal bent ahead and he did, was averse to war and seen all this suffering. But, of course, he was he was old enough to go through so much and, of course, see 9-11 happen. What was his... Did he give you any opinions on the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and what he thought our policy should be there? Did he Did he talk to you at all about that? Well, you know, those were the years that I was living in, in Ukraine, and we really didn't talk very much about it. I mean, he was he was always horrified by war. Um, and I, I'm not sure that he, looking back on it, I would guess he didn't totally approve of those wars. But um, I'm not going to misspeak, and, I, and I'm really, it, it was something we didn't talk about very much. Is it is it your opinion, just yours personally, that we that we should still be in um, Afghanistan and Iraq, and that we should keep some troops in Syria, or do you have any any opinions on that? Having well, I think that um, I think we should have never gone in the first place. <laughs> right, that's where I think, and now it's more difficult. But I mean, we can't have troops everywhere in the world and keep having them forever and ever. 
You know, um, but it's it, it's causing a lot of trouble right now. Having had such an interesting father as you did, and having had such an interesting life as you have, and seen so much in your life, and and, and we look at the, the world today, which we don't have a Hitler and we don't have a Stalin, but we have so much disarray and chaos, and we we just recently defeated ISIS, but we have this as new Islamic fundamentalism and problems that didn't exist when when you were dealing with the problems in the 40s and your father was. Do you think the word overall still in a better state of the world today than it was when you were growing up and going through you know, the 40s and 50s? Well, I don't know whether to say it's in a better state or a worse state. It's, it's perhaps in a more um, confusing state. Okay. Because it's much easier when you just have one enemy. Right. It's us us and the Russians, and that was very simple. Anybody could sort of understand that, and you, you could feel pro pro or sympathetic or anti-Russian, but we just had the one enemy. Now we have China, which is rapidly going to probably surpass Russia and surpass you know, God knows who else. It's, it's growing. Even though the growth has slowed, it's still growing very rapidly. And um, we have so many, we have different enemies. We have a, we, we're in a more complex world. And I think that is difficult for people to understand. And I'm sure your father would probably find it, I think he would have probably found it confusing, world be more confusing than the world that he dealt with in the 40s? Well, he he had a very sharp mind if he was alive and not 110 or something. I think he would come up with some very interesting thoughts about the world now. I'm, I'm sure but, he would have. Um, the world then was what the world then was. Well, um... Well, Grace Kenan Warnicke, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on the program today and, and your book, Daughter of the Cold War, and the website for the National Committee on American Foreign Policy. And thank you so much for talking to us and sharing your fascinating father's views and, and talking about your life. Well, thank you for having me, Brown. It thank was you. interesting to talk about it. Thanks so much. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye.